0: Our scripture reading today will be from Joshua 11. I'll let you find that in your Bibles, or you can find it in your bulletin as well. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the king's who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah south of Kinneroth and in the low land and in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon in Mizrephoth Mayim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he had left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Down to verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses." And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Achim from the hill country of, from Hebron to Debir from Anab and from the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Achim left in the land of people of Israel Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you so much, Bridget, for reading such a tough passage Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, you say that in your light we see light, and that's what we pray for this morning, uh, for your Holy Spirit to shine the light on our hearts and to soften our hearts, that we would receive from you this morning your word, and that you would go about the work through your Holy Spirit of transforming our hearts into the likeness of your Son. We ask that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that I love to do is I love to play guitar, and uh, I don't do it often. I actually do it only a few minutes at a time, Uh, and when I'm going about learning a new song or a new phrase or lick, uh, you'll hear me doing this over and over again. In fact, I'm sure my family has been listening the past couple weeks to the very same short few chords and licks over and over and over again, and I'm doing that. To ingrain it, to make it become like a habit, so that automatically my fingers will know exactly what the chord progression is or what the various lick is that I'm trying to learn. Now, one of the fears that I've had coming to Lake Baldwin Church, I'll let you in on this little secret: is, is I've been concerned that one morning I'm going to come up here and I'm going to refer to you guys as Covenant Church, and why is that? Because. I spent years in front of another congregation referring to them as Covenant Church. And one of these mornings, I'm gonna walk in here and I'm not even gonna know I'm gonna do it. I'm just gonna say, welcome to Covenant Church. And you guys are gonna tell me afterwards what I did and I'm gonna feel real bad about it. (laughs) But it's because I've ingrained that in my head that it becomes automatic. And I'm concerned that we can be that way when it comes to sin. By repeating it over And over again, we're ingraining a habit in our heart, so much so that we become comfortable with it, uh, that it might seem normal to us, that we may normalize it in our heart and in our behavior, we may just accept it as a part of who we are. And if we're getting that way when it comes to sin, actually our heart is becoming hard. And we should be frightened a little bit by what's going on in our heart. And so we've seen this idea of a hardening heart already in the book of Joshua. As Joshua approaches the various people in the land, they harden their heart. And we're going to see this again in chapter 11 as we approach the northern kingdom. We're going to see the warning of hardening. And after that, we're going to see the challenge of perseverance. Unless you guys get too discouraged about those first two points, I want to close with the comfort Vindication. And so that's your outline this morning the warning of hardening, the challenge of perseverance, and the comfort of vindication. Well, last time in chapter 10, if you didn't realize it, chapter 10 closed with the conquering of the southern portion of the promised land. It's all done, it's all conquered. And now in chapter 11, just to set the stage, when we get to the end of chapter 11, Israel and Joshua, they're going to be done with conquering the northern kingdom. In other words, the war is going to be over. And so where we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 11 is the start of the conquest of the northern kingdom. And I want to jump right into that very first point, which is the warning of hardening. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 5, and then kind of a summary of it in verse 20. Bridget did such a wonderful job. Let me read some of these for you. When Jabin King of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Jobab, King of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kinroth and in the lowland, and in Napoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all of these kings, they joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And then in verse 20 is a summary. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so we see right away in verse one a familiar pattern that we've seen over and over again. The people of land, they hear something going on. It comes across their Twitter feed, right? We've heard that the the people of Israel, they've crossed the River Jordan, The great walls of Jericho have fallen down. Ai, that great city, has fallen. The Gibeonites have made peace with Israel. Israel has marched all throughout the southern kingdom and has conquered all the kings and cities. And maybe these northern kings heard about this. What we heard last time is the kings, they were killed, they were hung on a tree, thrown in a cave, never to emerge ever again. That's the information that's coming to these people. And we also see later on that they, they're going to apply all their resources towards this battle. For the very first time, we see that horses and chariots are going to be employed in the war. And this is a fascinating thing to think about. For the first time, Israel is coming up against a technologically superior army. And I love how We heard in verse six this morning the encouragement that God gives his people. He says, Don't be afraid, Joshua. Yet again, I'm going to give them into your hand. And this should be now ringing in your ears as you've heard it over and over again. Every time Joshua faces an obstacle, like the Jordan River, like the walls of Jericho, like the five kings of the Amorites, and now these new kings, we hear God encouraging Joshua again and again, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm going to give them into your hand. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And so when we look at the response of the kings, we're a little bit saddened, right? Because they're not stopping and considering why is judgment coming? Why are all these kingdoms falling? They give no thought to fleeing. They give no thought to stopping what it is they're doing. But they raise their arms defiantly against the Lord. And I read to you verse 20, and I want to come back to that. Uh, It's a very significant verse for us to unpack. It says that it was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing what? That they should fight against Israel and be destroyed and receive no mercy. Those are pretty strong words. Very strong words. In other words, the scripture is telling us this morning that God in his sovereignty had determined that these people were going to go to destruction. They were going to be judged and wrath was going to come upon them. And yes, they're not going to receive mercy. We sung about mercy this morning. and It reminds us of the mercy of God. And we look here and we say, well, there's no mercy for these people. And I want you to remember that God has waited 400 years for these people to repent. He's waited 400 years, many, many generations for these people to repent. And he's given them mercy. He's given them grace all along the way. And so when we come to a passage like this and it says that they should receive no mercy, we kind of bristle up. And we forget all of the mercy that they've been given. And should God right now give them even more mercy? Does he owe them more mercy? As you consider that question right now in your heart, I think the answer to that question will tell you something about the way you view sin, what you think of sin. Because if sin is such a light thing, then God, if he is a just God, he is gonna deal with it in a light way. But we know from the New Testament that the wages of sin, according to Romans 6, is death. You earn death because of sin. And if you are in Christ this morning, you know something further. That for your sin to be forgiven, to be, for it to be paid for, to be atoned, it requires nothing short of the precious blood of God's dear Son. It requires the blood of God himself. And so when we look and ask the question, is sin a light thing? It's not. It requires death. It requires the precious blood of God. It requires destruction. And so when we look at this idea, again, another idea that we may bristle at, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you may have heard this idea before uh, from the book of Exodus. Uh, The Lord says this about Pharaoh. He's hardening his heart. And R.C. Sproul says it this way. He, he, he's quoting Luther here. God did not create fresh evil in the heart of an innocent man. Luther said that God didn't harden people by putting evil in their hearts. All that God must do to harden anyone's heart is to withhold his own grace. That is, he gives a person over to himself. It's important for us to understand because when we come up against those words that the Lord hardens someone's heart, we may be tempted to think that the Lord is doing something evil in their heart. He's doing something bad. And we know from 1 John 1 that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So we cannot accuse God of doing evil in the heart of man. He is simply giving them over to the evil that's already there. He's pulling back his grace upon them. Because you see, this people, their hearts are already hard. They've been steeped for generations in pagan worship. They've been steeped for generations in sexual immorality, in the sacrifice of their children. They've been steeped that way, and so they are already defiant against God. God doesn't have to do something extra to harden their hearts. He's removing his grace. He's allowing them to get what they want, which is to fight against God, to be defiant against him. That should frighten us. That God would give you over to your sin. That God would allow you to get exactly what you want. That's what's going on right here. We see the same idea in Romans chapter one. If you're familiar with it, you will see that saying over and over again that God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to the sin that's in their heart, to do the evil that was in their heart. And we should heed this warning of having a heart that is hardened by sin, just like practicing those guitar phrases over and over again, where I begin to do it without even thinking, to do it automatically, to do it out of habit and comfort. And so, the question this morning is: Is has sin become something that is automatic for you? And have you gotten to that place where you are less responsive to God because of repeated sin? If that's what's going on, your heart is becoming hard. Your conscience is becoming seared by sin. And just like those northern kings, you're not gonna respond to the warnings that God is sending your way. And furthermore, you're gonna become defiant against God, just like those people in the land. And so by way of application, is there an area of your life that is not under the lordship of Christ? Are you becoming hard in your heart about a certain area of sin? Are you becoming comfortable with it? Is it becoming your friend? And if you have any bit of softness in your heart this morning as you hear these words, what should you do? You should do what these kings failed to do. You should run away from that sin. You should should do what the Bible calls repent. You should turn away from that sin. You should flee from it. Run away and run to Christ. I think as we read the book of Joshua and we read these stories over and over again, it's easy for us to begin to think of ourselves as the main characters in this story. We think of ourselves as Joshua. We think of ourselves as Israel. We do this all the time when we're reading stories. This morning, I want us to consider us to be the people in the land, to be the Canaanite in the land. And why is that? Because we too have hardened our hearts towards God. We too are guilty of sin, deserving of no mercy, deserving of destruction. And so when we think of Israel, when we think of Joshua and wonder, like, what's going on there? Well, we should be amazed that God has mercy on them, that God has grace on them. Hear what the scripture says in Deuteronomy, how God talks about Israel. He says this in verse 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 9, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Why, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Do you hear what these words are saying? In other words, Israel, you're no better than the Canaanite. You're no better than the Canaanite. You deserve destruction as well. You deserve no mercy as well. You deserve to be swept away by my wrath. And if you're in Christ this morning, realize this, you're in Christ because of his great grace and his mercy towards you. You are not receiving the justice that you deserve. And why is that? If you're in Christ this morning, it's because Christ received the justice that you deserve. Christ was destroyed so that you can have grace. Just like the Canaanite, he was destroyed. He suffered the curse That we deserve so that we can stand this morning in grace, forgiven people. That's the warning of hardening that we should heed this morning. Let's look now at the challenge of perseverance. We see this in verse 18, where it says that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Now, how long is a long time? Well, scholars, they're able actually to estimate how long this is Because in the scriptures itself, we look at uh, the life of Caleb, where we're given his age at various points along this journey, and we see that it's roughly seven years of war. Seven years of war, which is longer than the Civil War, shorter than the American Revolutionary War. So there's quite a bit of time here. There's battles that are going on. Family members are being lost. People are living. People are dying. They're trying to settle in the land, rebuild some structures, plant vineyards, There's a lot of life lived in that seven years. In order to win this long war, Joshua and the people would have to have perseverance. They would have to have a long view, not a short view. I think most of you guys know Michael Jordan, probably one of the best guys to play the game of basketball. What you probably don't know about Michael Jordan is this that When he was in high school as a sophomore, they cut him from the varsity team. I mean, can you imagine that? Someone as great as Michael Jordan not making his high school team. And then when he finally got to the NBA in his second season, he broke his foot, missed 61 games. And he would suffer a number of injuries with his back and his ankle along the way. And it would take Michael Jordan 17 long years of playing basketball until he got that very first of six NBA titles. Now, if Michael Jordan had the short view in life and he didn't have a long view, he would never have reached that first NBA title. He would have given up before he even started. We have to have the long view. You know, I think our culture today is, is conditioned us uh, for instant gratification. I think it probably started with my generation, Gen X. And why is that? It's because we had this invention called the microwave. And when we had the microwave, we got conditioned to have an entire meal made for us in two short minutes. Well, it seeped into every area of our culture today, Right? I mean, you've got same-day delivery. You've got entertainment on demand. You've got credit cards. You don't have to wait to satisfy yourself. You can have it right now, right when you want it. And this idea of instant gratification, it's impacted so many areas of our life. I'm, I'm afraid it's come into the way we think about church, our expectations for the church. It's impacted the way we even think about our own journey of faith we begin to think that it's supposed to happen instantaneously and not be a long journey well I don't think it's an accident that the Bible uses uh, a metaphor like agriculture or farming when it talks about discipleship and for those of you who know anything about that who've ever planted a seed and cared for it and waited and watered and you know that it takes time you know it takes patience. You don't plant a seed and wake up the next morning and then suddenly you've got a full-grown tree. The results are not gonna be overnight. Jerry Bridges, I have gave you this quote in your bulletin. He says it this way, we keep wanting instant success, but holiness doesn't come that way. Our sinful habits are not broken overnight. Follow-through is required to make any change in our lives and follow-through, it requires perseverance. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard a wonderful sermon that Will Schaffelberger preached, and I love how he made this point from the very beginning. He he said this, Jesus, in this Matthew chapter 4 temptation narrative, he is not only our Savior, but he is our example. He's our example, right? Because Jesus could have gone for instant gratification. He could have said, yes, I want the food after fasting. He could have said, yes, I want to control the kingdoms of this world, but he didn't go for instant gratification. He chose the long view. He chose the long road. He chose the cross before the crown. And we here this morning, we want instant success, right? We want the crown first. We don't even want the cross. We want to get right to the crown. When we think of our journey of faith, we have to have this Long view. And I want to say this about this idea of perseverance. The question is, Is does it mean should, should we buckle down? Uh, should we try harder? Because that, that sounds a little bit like it's not the gospel if we're, if we're trying hard. But I do want to challenge some of you this morning that yes, you do need to try harder because God has given, he has teed up the means of grace for you. He is, he's given you prayer. He's given you his His word, he's given you worship and God's people and you have not availed yourself of these means. And yes, you need to run the race. You need to get engaged. But we can find rest as we persevere. This is the gospel, this is the good news. Why? Because there's one who went before us who persevered on our behalf, credited to our behalf. And so at every point when we fail or when we are lazy and not engaged in our faith, the good news is this that Christ has persevered for us he has persevered and credited to our account but i do want you to heed the warning if you're not engaged with the means of grace be careful not to presume upon the grace of god be careful not to work out your faith with fear and trembling lest you find that you are not among god's people well, we need to understand this idea when it comes to sanctification about ourselves that we have to take the long view. And I think, I think most of us do actually do that. We give ourselves a pass when we see that we fail over and over again. But when it comes to the people around us, we kind of take the short view. We want them to be instantly sanctified, don't we? We give ourselves the excuse, but we don't allow them to have any grace. And so the challenge this morning is if you want to be counterculture in the world today, in the society today, if you want to be different and stand out in the world today, I mean, you know, all you have to do is drive around Orlando and hear all the honking horns of impatience. All you have to do is open up your phone and look at and scroll through social media and see there's no grace. People are looking for you to, to make one wrong mistake and they're going to jump all over f- All over you. If you want to be counterculture in this world, we need to be quick to give grace to one another. We need to take the long view of grace with each other. And so let's look now and close with this idea of the comfort, the comfort of vindication in verses 21 and 22. And it says in the scripture, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim. From the hill country, from Hebron, from the Beer, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. And verse twenty-three says that you know the the war war is ended and the the land had rest from war. And so that is that's the end. That's the end. Israel has come in and possessed all of the land, and we have such a strange ending to the conquest in verses 21 and 22. And why do I say it's strange? It it seems like a footnote or an appendage, because there's this account in two verses of the people that we have not been introduced to yet in the book of Joshua. These are the Anakim. And who are these people, and why end the story of the conquest in this way? Well, to understand this, we have to go back in history to when Moses first sent spies into the land. And this is 40 years of rewind. We have to go back. And if you remember in Numbers 13, there's an account of this where Moses sends 12 men into the land to check it out. And they're supposed to bring back a report. And who are the people among those 12? Well, they're two young guys. One whose name is Joshua. One whose name is Caleb. Caleb. Now listen to this account. You're going to hear two reports coming back in this account. There's going to be a majority report. There's going to be a minority report. So see if you can pick this out as I read from Numbers 13, starting in verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land, they're strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants." And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. And so when we come to these ending verses in chapter 11, who are the Anakim? They are the sons of Anak. They are the people that the spies encountered when they went in to spy out the land. And so what are the two reports? Well, you have 10 of the spies saying, well, there are giants in that land. I don't don't think we should go in there. But you have Caleb and you have Joshua who have faith in God and his promises saying, no, we can go into land. Let's go, let's go take that land. Well, as you know, the majority usually wins in a group, right? And the majority wins in this case in, in, in a way that they want to incite a rebellion. They go about the process of... Overthrowing Moses and they're about to stone Caleb and Joshua for bringing back such a report but Moses he intercedes on their behalf and as a consequence to this what happens that whole generation wiped away they died in the wilderness and only Joshua and only Caleb get to enter this promised land and so do you see as we end the conquests with verses 21 and 22, that this kind of is a fitting end to the story, a fitting book end to the story that started in Numbers 13 where Joshua said, yes, we believe God. And they were persecuted for it. But some 40 years later, the author of scripture is saying this, no, now we've conquered the entire land, we've won the war, and by the way, we've overcome these giants as if they were nothing. God is putting his stamp not only on his promises, he's actually putting his stamp, his confirmation, his vindication on Joshua and on Caleb. They were right. They were right. They were on the right side of history this time. Well, if you've ever taken a righteous stance, if you've ever suffered for it, you know what it's like not to be vindicated. You know the injustice involved in that. You know, Nelson Vandela, he uh, spent 27 years in prison. He would have to wait 27 years to be released from prison. He would have to wait a large amount of time to see apartheid abolished, to see that his stance against it was actually right. Now, as I look around this morning at us this morning, I can, I can think that most of us actually don't know what it's like to suffer for our faith we don't know but we do know many of our brothers and sisters throughout history around the world who have not only died in the faith have been martyred for their faith but who are now suffering those who have died like polycarp like huss like tyndale dietrich bonhoeffer jim elliot kayla Mueller. They will be vindicated for their faith. And now those who are suffering, I think of Pastor Wang Yi. He's in a jail in China serving multi-year sentence for what? For his faith. For preaching the good news that we received this morning. Pastor Wang Yi will be vindicated for his faith. And If you're in Christ this morning, you can take comfort. You will be vindicated Your faith will be proven right. You will be on the right side of history. But I want to close by saying this, that there is a greater comfort that I want to give to you this morning. There's a greater comfort than being vindicated. And it comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I'm going to paraphrase it this way. That, dear Christian, you should be comforted that you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful. Savior Jesus Christ, because he has fully paid for your sins and for mine with his precious blood. Take comfort in that this morning, Christian, because you belong to Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, mighty God, we are a people that don't deserve mercy. We sing about it and we recognize that it's grace that we receive. And we receive it because you did not withhold mercy against your dear son. And so we give you thanks, we give you great praise this morning for him. We stand in grace because of Christ. We belong to him if we are in him. And I wanna pray this morning for someone here this morning who has not followed Christ in faith, who has not turned away from repeated sin, that you would soften their heart and not harden it, that you would beckon them and call them to faith in you. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen.